Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Sakib's taking the show off after uh, doing a lot of hard work uh, in February and on into early March uh, during the Australian Open. Um, it's time to just catch up on the state of the tours. And, uh, you know, we, we would have been doing Indian Wells right now, but we don't have Indian Wells for the second straight year. Miami is a little bit around the corner. So in this kind of in-between spot, Wanted to get a check-in on, you know, where tennis governance stands and a few other player uh, surveys as well. You know, Roger Federer's return, Danil Medvedev rising to number two. Uh, so a few things to check in on with in-house analyst for tennis with an accent, Andrew Burton. You can find him on Twitter at Burton ad, Burton AD. Uh, Andrew, welcome back to the show. Hey, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So, you know, there's been some action with the the big seven, the four major tournaments, the ATP, the WTA, and the ITF. Um, let's let's give our listeners on the Tennis with an Accent podcast an overview of where things stand and, and explore at least a few tension points uh, at the start of the show. Andrew, what 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 are your impressions about where te- tennis governance is going right now and where it might be headed as a result of these current stirrings? So there was a report earlier this week um, on Reuters where the ATP chair, Andrea Gaudenzi, said that those seven members, so ATP, WTA, the International Tennis Federation, the four Grand Slams, are bringing together something that they're calling a T7 working group. And they're taking a look at uh, a unified calendar, uh, commercial offerings, sponsorship, TV deals. Um, We've seen in the last year, um, you know, obviously the whole of the last year, almost a year ago, Indian Wells was was called off, which was the first major earthquake, I think, in, in the tennis world, showing what the coronavirus pandemic might lead to but we've had tournaments cancelled Wimbledon wasn't played um Roland Garros was moved um a few more tournaments this year but obviously the tournament schedules completely affected attempts put in place to to backstop some of the um the higher ranked players by higher ranked, I mean, the top 100, top 200, but a real question about where where tennis overall was going. And that was a, a question for the 2020s. What's the future of the sport? A lot of passion around that, a lot of different ideas. I remember talking to Mark Petschy on a Tennis with an Accent podcast about a year ago, looking at the questions of, you know, is it the right time to potentially bring the two tours together? What would you do if, if, if you actually made that happen? So it does seem that discussions are happening at, at uh, you know, the highest levels of the sport. And Gaudenzi has, has basically said that they're setting up a working group and they're going to they're take their time on it. They're going to take about 18 months or so to, to figure out what to do. Likely they'll report back from time to time, but they're holding bi-weekly meetings over the next six to nine months to, to work on proposals. So, you know, I'll pause there for, for, for your thoughts about that. Um, you know, whether you've seen signs that um, 
not just the two tours are potentially going to be working more closely together, but that the um, the highest levels of tennis are potentially listening and, and getting their act together in really challenging circumstances. Well, I'm in a I'm in a wait and see mode, Andrew. Um, you know, be pre- precisely because I I think we would both agree that tennis governance needs a reset uh, of some degree. There needs to be a, a a better model and obviously much better performance and and uh, accountability. There needs to be new ways of doing things, and the pandemic provides this in between space to reimagine what the sport's going to look like in the future. But of course, in the meantime. You know, we have to get through this 2021 season and, you know, we don't, you know, vaccine rollout is, you know, it's getting, it's definitely getting a lot better in the United States and parts of the West. Um, but uh, the, the flow across the world is still going to be limited. And as long as the dis- distribution across the whole world is limited, that still restricts, uh, you know, exactly how many tennis tournaments across the world over the full year can have fans and as long as fan uh, attendance and ticket sales are therefore limited, tournaments are gonna struggle financially. So all of that is still up in the air. And so it's then, and that's why, you know, what you mentioned with Gaudenzi doing a, an 18 month uh, examination, that seems prudent because, you know, getting a really hard fixed uh, idea or solution right now seems elusive and, not terribly realistic given all, given all the fluid circumstances. So, I mean, that's kind of my immediate impression and it leads me to my next question, Andrew, and that is, you know, what's your sense of how the pandemic is affecting tennis in the here and now versus how the pandemic is going to lead to a changed governance structure and or business model, uh, you know, that will be with us you know, for many years, that 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 there, there are going to be changes that will be long lasting. We, you know, what what looks like a temporary response to the problem within the pandemic, and what looks like a response to you know the long term questions. What what are your evolving thoughts and, and on you know what's what are the differences between those uh, different uh, trajectories? Well, when you think about the here and now, I think that. You, you kind of split it into uh, at least two groups, you know, one being the sports elite, the, the top 100 or so players who will play in Masters or on the WTA side, uh, premier events and potentially compete at slams. And those who are, you know, attempting to to make their way to the top level or, or still hoping to make their way to the top level, working their way through challenges and futures or or trying to break in at that level. And it seems like the the top level events are are likely to uh, you know more or less continue uninterrupted, although I think that the experience of the Australian Open where players had to quarantine they weren't able to do the same kind of fitness and conditioning and practice work that they were able to do in uh earlier tournaments um pre-pandemic that that meant it was very very hard for players to feel like they could do their best and 
I think that quarantine restrictions are still going to be a part of what happens as we go forward. So, you know, we may see some unusual results or, or players saying, I would normally go here and I'm, I'm just not going to do it this time around. But when you're, uh, you know, say you're, you're, you're 500 in the world, either on the WTA tour or the ATP tour, I think you're asking yourself, you know, where are my next paychecks coming from? You know, I might have been able to, to, to get by, to make just enough to continue as a professional tennis player in normal circumstances. But if I have to wait for another you know, year or two years until some kind of normal framework reestablishes itself, I may not be able to last that long. So again, I think that's something that I hope that the ATP and the WTA, are, you know, are thinking not just of the top 100, top 200, but they're thinking to the 2000 and, you know, the, the players below that level who, who are the foundations that future tours are going to be built on. In terms of the 2021 tennis calendar, Andrew, I mean, it seems as though the Olympics are pushing forward. You know, they recently, um, I mean, that's not a guarantee, but it seems as though it's pointing toward they're going to play. Uh, you know, there's, there was a policy uh, change recently that, you know, only Japanese fans are going to be able to attend. They won't be able to sell tickets to, people outside Japan. So, I mean, that just points to having a plan to pull this off and kind of like the, the uh, major tournaments in uh, 2020, the U.S. Open and Roland Garros, you know, it's basically to get the TV money, you know, they're going to take a bath on ticket sales. I, I, so I bring up the Olympics just because that seems like a part of the tennis calendar that's going to remain intact. But, you know, how we do this for the full season uh, is still a, a mystery, and, and it's especially a mystery when considering like the back-to-back -back weeks of Masters, you know, uh, Madrid-Rome, uh, Canada-Cincinnati, uh, the other particularly bunched portions of the, of the calendar, because you're going from one country to another within weeks, and, uh, you know, there's been plenty of mention by players that, you know, hey, if we're going to go from one country to another week to week, that's going to be really hard with all the quarantine and isolation uh, based, you know, restrictions that are in place. So wh where does tennis stand on, on this particular front? And, you know, what's your emerging impression about how much of the of the year is going to be played and, and how close to normal it's going to be. I mean, we're not, we're not at normal, of course, not with Indian Wells being lost. Um, and certainly, certainly not with having fans, you know, until, until, uh, you know, the, the, the world gets more vaccinations. Um, but we're getting closer to toward normal. So where, where do you think the sport stands based on everything that you're seeing around the globe? So I think that we are getting closer, but we're, we're really waiting to see if there's going to be a sustained period of time, um, particularly as vaccines become more available. As you said, Matt, you know, in the richer countries first, but China has developed its own vaccine and there's a big part of the WTA tour that uh, in the 
last quarter of the year focuses on on the Chinese swing, there's there's more of a chance that you'll get to see at the highest levels more of the tournaments at more of the same times that that we expected. A thing that that concerns me is tournaments at the 250 level, the challenges, the futures level that very often rely on on local sponsorship and local deals that the the 2022 season may be significantly denuded. I, I kind of expect that we'll see tournaments that we were used to seeing on the calendar dropping away. Now, one one thing that I will say about this uh, T7 proposal that the, the Big Seven are working on is that the, the ATP chairman is basically looking to see tennis move away from ticket sales and move more to getting funding from media and from data. Um, so, and, and one of the things that I think that we see as fans now is that the streaming existence is still very balkanized, that if you're in the United States, you may have access to um, the tennis channel, uh, but it's got its premium service. ESPN has a premium service. You've got Tennis TV, which is done for the, the men's tour. If they can bring together a unified digital service, many tennis fans would say that would be a big win. And doesn't the unification of the tours come in here as a very important piece? Like if 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 the two tours are going to merge, like they have to have a joint media package, one would think that they're going to integrate or at least offer their, their, their products in a more integrated way compared to if the tours don't merge. So um, in terms of all, all, everything that's on the table in terms of you know, emerging technology, emerging media delivery uh, options, how would the merging of the tours in your mind uh, significantly influence you know, the kind of uh, the, the range and type of products uh, the ATP and WTA would offer a global audience? I mean, you'd expect to see, um, you know, unified marketing. You'd expect to see uh, the live matches and replays being uh, available 24-7. One of the key questions I think that the sport's going to have to wrestle with is making sure that the two tours uh, or, or the let, let's not say the two tours in a future world in which the, the, the tours are uh, combined in the same body. How do you make sure that the women's version of the game is given equal prominence, equal standing and sees equal funding to the men's version of the game? Because one of the things that I think has has sort of crept into the sport in the last decade or so has been this idea that. Um, you know, the the men's version of the game brings in more money in the in the ATP uh, realm once you get away from the the ITF um, sponsored Grand Slam tournaments and some of the male players I think still have this idea that you know they're kind of like 
the the NFL to to college sports for the the women's game, and and making sure that that the the women's game is given equal prominence and an equal standing is a is an absolutely critical part of getting this right. Do you think that you know having the women play best of five in, in at the very least major tournament finals or year end championships? finals is now an economic and and maybe even political necessity if the two tours are going to merge and you know streamline and consolidate their resources you know because i think in previous years or decades the idea of having women play best of five finals at the biggest tournaments was just a matter of you know let's get rid of this talking point that you know only men's tennis is real tennis at the majors or that the women have an inferior product or that or more precisely andrew that the women don't do as much work you know they're just they're over in best of three land the men are here doing best of five so we have to even that up but maybe are we arriving at a point where this needs to happen so that you know in tennis's reimagined economic and media landscape you know, if there's going to be parity and kind of a, the, the WTA is going to receive economic footing and promotion and marketing on the same plane as the ATP, that's why this reform needs to happen. To be honest, Matt, um, I would be surprised if the men's Grand Slam matches uh, feature best of five by the end of the 2020s. I, um, to me, it's, it's, it, it's a fantastic version of the sport for historic reasons. Um, men playing best of five at, at slams and in the Davis cup was the norm. Whereas women would play best of three throughout as, as athletes, um, no question that the, women athletes are as capable as men are of playing best of five. But I think that you've got a lot of men players and men commentators questioning the ability of the sport to keep people's focus for, you know, a virtually unlimited amount of time, certainly adding up to, to four to five hours in, in, in some cases, if you were to think about scheduling um tournaments where everyone was playing best of five that would be tough now of course you could make the finals best of five uh and have the you know as used to be the case on many men's tour matches in the 1990s and 2000s many tournaments finished as best of five um but i kind of feel like the momentum is 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 going the other way the 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 talking point that Hey, the guys play best of five sets, um, so they're they're doing more work. I'm I'm not sure that the, that that's got much traction. So uh, I'd love to see best of five being played in the in the men's slams for as long as it will continue. I just if I had to bet money, it's that it wouldn't be there in 2030. Okay, we got our helping of tennis governance, tennis media, 
tennis economics. Let's now go to the, what's happening on the court. Um, there's this guy, Andrew. You might have heard of him from time to time. Uh, his name, what? Uh, Roger uh, Federer? Yeah, Roger Federer. So he came back. He played a couple matches. Andrew, what, what, uh, what do you have to say about his return, how he looked, uh, physical conditioning? What, if anything, we can glean from two matches? I mean, it's a small sample size. But nevertheless, he did return. So we got a chance to see him in action again after uh, 13 and a half, 14 months away. What were your general impressions? Um, I'll go with the glass half full rather than the glass half empty. Um, Feder himself said that he was happy. Uh, he said he hadn't expected uh, to be competitive for winning the Doha title. And so, you know, just getting back on court, playing matches was the thing. He, he played two three-set matches, one against Dan Evans, a British player who had trained with Federer uh, in the, the run-up to Doha, and they'd apparently played best of three matches five days in a row to give Federer a sense of what his physical recovery was going to be like. I think that may have helped Evans, you know, given him a few pointers for how Federer would actually play on the match court because Evans played a, an excellent match. He was extremely consistent. Uh, Federer won the first set in a tiebreaker. Evans won the second set. And then it was a very competitive third set. Evans had a couple of break points in the middle of the third set, didn't convert them. And then in the final game of the match, as it turned out, Evans just lost a little bit of consistency, double faulted, hit a couple of unforced errors that he hadn't been making before. And Federer took his chance and, and won the match. Um, seemed very happy with that. His next match was against uh, the Georgian uh, Nikolas Basilashvili. Uh, and Basilashvili uh, had, I think he, he, he'd been sort of a first round zero. He'd lost multiple tournaments in the first round in 2020, coming into 2021. He hadn't got past the first round in uh, any of the four tournaments he'd played leading up to Doha. Um, and, you know, he could have been forgiven for thinking, well, I'm here to make up the numbers, but, but not a bit of it. He, uh, he lost the first set to Federer, won the second set comfortably, and by the start of the third set, the, I thought the match was on Basil Ashville's racket. Um, Federer sneaked a match point late in the um, third set in the quarterfinal against Basil Ashville when he, he hit a horribly mistimed slice that just crept across the net for a winner. And so he had a, a match point at 30-40. Basil Ashville uh, came in behind uh, a shot to the ad corner and Federer couldn't get across to make a passing shot and hit a, a bunt backhand well wide. And that was actually kind of emblematic of what the third set had looked like because what I saw as the match went on, I mean, Basil Ashville, uh, he doesn't die wanting. He, he gives the ball some serious giddy up and I'd thought of him as a flat hitter, but he can also hit the ball with tremendous topspin and zip. And Federer likes to sort of move into the ball in this kind of a V-shaped pattern. 
and sort of cut off the angle a bit. And what I noticed during the second and third set was he was just going laterally or even backwards to try and retrieve the ball. So uh, the next two games, uh, Basilashvili broke Federer and then held. He was up 40 love, got pegged back to 40-30, but hit a lovely backhand winner uh, to win it. Um, afterwards, Federer said that he'd had a little bit of, of soreness in his shoulder. Um, that was pretty normal. He'd been serving harder than he had in practice. Overall, his body was holding up well. Uh, but then five hours later, he pulled out of Dubai. He'd been scheduled to play in Dubai uh, a few weeks earlier. He also announced that he wasn't going to play in Miami on the, the last major hard court tournament before the clay season. So, you know, I thought overall Federer looked okay. He, um, you know, hints of rust, but nothing, nothing too spectacular. Um, but he's clearly, he's, he's on a long road back. Uh, some of us remember 2017 where he took time off after Wimbledon uh, in 2016 after uh, stumbling famously against Raonic in the fifth set and you know looking down and out on his hands and knees and then he came back to beat Nadal in an epic final in the Australian Open in 2017 and I think a few Federer fans were thinking yep 2021 is going to be just like that it isn't He's he's four years older and he's 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 got more miles on his body, but also the the road back from surgery is a lot harder this time around. Well, and is there something specific to the injury Federer suffered uh, last year, which makes the recovery uh, more complicated than it was, you know, than the tumble that he took in the roundage match? Uh, in 2016 at Wimbledon, or is it just about being four years older and having the, the the greater wear and tear? Are there some specific nuances that people need to be aware of here? I think so. Um, there's an article that you can probably track down um, by Pierre Paganini, who's Federer's coach. He's he's given a couple of interviews, one of them to Federer's longtime biographer, uh, René Stavsky. And Paganini said that, that this time around, so Federer had two surgeries this year. And, and I think it, was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't for a specific traumatic injury. It was for chronic knee pain. So he had meniscal surgery. He, he then went into recovery work after the Australian Open last year and then had surgery again in June. So they clearly had some more work that they needed to do. And Paganini said that, back in 2016 you know Federer had you know fully developed working muscles but is they weren't quite firing properly if you like so they just had to work on on really re-strengthening stabilizing the knee but it was it was easier work whereas you know I think Paganini's quoted as saying that you know some of the exercises they were getting Federer to do on his road to recovery this time around were ones that, you know, maybe a 70-year-old would need to do to, to, to really start rehabilitating. But Federer had very, very little muscle strength uh, because of atrophy. Now, whether that atrophy was after the first surgery or just because he's older, I'm not sure. Um, but it, it, he's clearly had to take it very, very step by step. 
And this time around, he wasn't able to come to Melbourne. He didn't think he'd be competitive. And I think that, you know, seeing the back-to-back matches against Evans and Basilashvili, you know, you could see why that that was. That he's he's basically the famous Federer phrase is, is gathering information about what his body's able to do. And this time around, after two matches, he said, very happy, really surprised myself about how well I was able to compete. Oh, and I'm not ready to play another tournament next week. I'm going to be better off going back to training. So we won't see him again before the the clay season. And there, I think he's he's looked at that and said, you know, the muscles that you use on clay are different from the ones that you use on hard. But if I'm going to get some match practice, I'm going to have to go out on the clay. Um, he's targeting the grass season for being 100% um, you know, back to, to full recovery. Um, we just have to wait and see. I, I, th- I think there's no guarantees that you'll see uh, Federer lifting um, a tennis trophy in 2021 or 2022. But I remember when Novak Djokovic was going through the toils a couple of years ago and he had back-to-back defeats in Indian Wells and Miami in the first rounds he played there that uh, I was talking to, to some of his fans and, and, and I said, look, there, there's a one-third chance that Djokovic is you know, seriously compromised in his future play and is not the player that he was. There's a one-third chance that he, that he does make a, a good recovery and, and lifts trophies again but isn't a dominant player. And there's a one-third chance that he becomes a dominant player again, you know, the dominant player in the ATP. And, and what do you know, uh, Novak Djokovic just bust the uh, Federer's own all-time record for weeks at number one, has, has gone through 311 and counting. So you, as a lot of people have said, you never know with the really great players. Nadal is now tied with Federer at 20 grand slams and going for number 21 at Roland Garros. And the, the really great players surprise you. And you briefly alluded to Djokovic uh, getting to 311 weeks. Um, you know, how, I mean, you know, we knew that that was coming. We knew that that was just around the horizon at the start of 2021. Now that it's actually happened, any, any new insights into just the meaning of that and perhaps what it means in a larger context, uh, what, what, what new things are there to be said uh, about that remarkable achievement by Djokovic? I think that the, you know, if you, it, it, each of the, the, the top players has done it their own way. Um, and for Djokovic, uh, you know, he had, a couple of really dominant phases. So you, you go back to 2011 where he was on this, this long winning streak and he won uh, three of the major tournaments that year. Then 2015, 2016, uh, he held four slams, the Novak slam, if you like. Um, then, you know, falling, losing touch with what had made him such a great competitor for a while and then bringing it back and last year suffering the disappointment at the um 
the US Open of being disqualified in, in bizarre circumstances. Uh, coming to Melbourne this year, I think many people were staggered that he was able to, to make it to the final and then beat Medvedev uh, you know, quite comfortably after what looked like a tournament terminating injury to one of his abdominal muscles uh, in his third round match. Um, so, you know, making it his, his way through to the final and then winning it, that just, you know, that combination of relentless drive consistency, but also excellence. I mean, Djokovic has, as Nadal has, as Federer had, in his own way, just been a, a model of excellence. And it's it's been a little bit surprising that, that we haven't seen anyone else come and, and pick up the baton, um, you know, in the, the decade plus since Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer established themselves as the as the the big three, but maybe it shouldn't be surprising because they they've been so unique and special at the top of the ATP in the Open era. You know, and and as we talk about the 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 top tier of men's tennis, one player who has finally busted up one small component of the big three's dominance is Daniil Medvedev by getting to the world number two ranking. Um, you know, the, that's, that's the first time that's happened in a very long time that a non big three, non Andy Murray player has been world number two. Um, it, when we, as we look ahead to Miami, Andrew, is it pretty safe to say that Medvedev really needs to, put a, a, a trophy on the board because, you know, as we know, clay and grass are not nearly as strong for him. Um, hard courts are where he needs to eat. And so of all the players that are going to go down to Miami, he, he faces more pressure than anyone else. Is that a fair assessment and an assessment that you agree with at this time? Well, I think he'll discover what the top ranked players over time have discovered which is that you go in with a target on your back that um beating daniel medvedev world number six world number seven is a praiseworthy performance but beating one of the top two players in the world that shows that you belong so a lot of a lot of players are going to be up with a bit more intensity to play medvedev than they might have been otherwise. Yes, there will be expectations on him. Um, I think that he, you know, he's not yet a slamless number one. He's a slamless number two. And he's reached a couple of, of slam finals, uh, came close against Nadal, didn't come close against Djokovic. The, the, the question they're going to be asking of Medvedev, as they've asked of Zverev before him, is... You know, when are you going to break through at the majors? And, you know, he'll get a chance in Roland Garros, but there's at least a couple of players who can play on clay that you'd, you'd likely pick ahead of Medvedev. Um, unlikely that Wimbledon is going to be his first major, so then you go you know, back to the, the US Open. 
the Medvedev did win in Marseille this week, beat uh, Pierre Gerbert in, in the final in the third set. I don't yet have a sense of Medvedev. I don't know if, how you feel about this, Matt, but I don't yet have the sense of Medvedev as a player who I pencil into the semi-finals whenever I see his name on a, on a tournament score sheet. Yeah, I'd agree. We're not we're not in the summer and uh, fall of 2019, which was a run unto itself. You know that that zone, you know, introduced a lot of the tennis world to Medvedev, but he's not in that zone anymore. It's a, it's a very different uh, landscape. So I definitely agree there. All right, closing out the show, Andrew. Uh, you know, so as we go to Miami, anything that you're particularly looking at in terms of you know what you're eager to see, what you're uh, interested in, in terms of uh, how both the, the men's and women's tours uh, evolve in 2021, players to watch, players who need to deliver a good result, players who need to establish something now heading into clay, uh, just some general overview thoughts uh, to finish up. Um, well, we've spent probably more time on the ATP than the WTA on the WTA side. I think if you're seeing Garbina Muguruza in your quarter, you're feeling a little bit nervous. And she has really, I think, reestablished herself as one of the, the hardest competitors out there. And I, I'm looking to see whether she continues that and, and makes a deep run in Miami. Um, Ashley Barty, who I believe is still the number one, um, has had a tougher time of it. And, uh, and she's another player that, that I'm looking to see. The, the, the WTA, I think, has, has something of an excess of riches of really strong, promising younger players uh, making their way up than the ATP has, although on the ATP side, um, I'll be very interested to see whether Yannick Sinner makes his way into the top ranks in, in this year. He's, he's a player that uh, can, can do it all and particularly surprise you with an injection of pace and attacking um, shots when he, you know, he looks like he's settled into a, into a basic rally, suddenly, boom, it's over. And, and Basil Ashvili as well, uh, you know, was the win that he had in Doha. Yes, it was a 250, but there were a lot of good players down there, including team. Uh, he beat Bautista Agu in a bit of a windy contest for the final. But Basil Ashvili has had, um, you know, a very torrid time of it. He's had uh, struggles off the court because of uh, domestic violence accusation, uh, which as far as I know is as yet unresolved. But he was, you know, making his way up the ranks. Is, is he going to be a flash in the pan or is suddenly 2021 going to turn out big for him? But I think that Miami is sort of like, because we don't have the Indian Wells Miami swing this time around, and there's been so much time that's elapsed since the Australian Open, it's kind of like it's an outlier. Most of the attention, I think, is going to focus on what's going to happen on the clay. 
He's Andrew Burton. You can find him on Twitter at Burton Ad, Burton AD. Andrew Burton always delivers the best in tennis insights to tennis with an accent. And on tennis Twitter, Andrew, uh, you and your family stay safe in the pandemic. Thanks for joining us on Tennis with an Accent. It was my pleasure, Matt. Thanks a lot.